Hello and welcome to the Gladstone's Land podcast from the National Trust for Scotland. Episode 9, The King Over the Water, Bonnie Prince Charlie and the Jacobites. Hello and welcome again to the Gladstone's Land podcast. Here we are again. I'm Thomas. I'm Kate. And we're back again to to talk some more about Scottish history. And uh, uh, how, how are you doing today? Are you well? Good, yes. Good. I was about to launch into Jacobites there. Oh, but, well. uh, no, I'm, I'm, doing, I'm doing well. It's a, a beautifully sunny day and we've escaped from the basement. We're up on the third floor today mm. um, and the sun is streaming through the windows and it's really very pleasant. I, um, I've actually just, uh, listeners, I've actually just got back from a trip to uh, Australia, where most notably I went to a National Trust of uh, Victoria property uh, and chatted to some uh, of the volunteers there. So a shout out to our, our brethren at the National Trust in, uh, in Melbourne. Um, today we are, are talking about the Jacobites. Mm-hmm, uh, we are. Which are one of the most exciting events in Scottish and British history and and also I think one of the events or one of the the movements that people are most interested in. Uh, There's a lot of talk uh, today about the Jacobites uh, and so we thought it'd be really good to to do an episode about them. We have some uh, we have some Jacobite connections in Gladstone's Mm -hmm. land itself actually. Um, A number of things that are mentioned on the tour relate to the Jacobites in some way and we'll talk about those a little bit later on Mm -hmm. as well and also try to stop us. uh, Yes also brilliantly we we've got a real expert uh, on 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 the Jacobites on our volunteer rotor Mm -hmm. uh, Rory Hardy who who's on for our uh, for our interview. So a great episode lined up I'm, I'm sure you'll agree I'm very excited yep um, what we're just going to do very briefly before we get on to the interview is is do a little background um, because uh, I needed to do this for my own um, thoughts just to just to get a run through uh, just to make sure we knew um, where we were because the the politics uh, of late uh, 17th century Scotland can it's be quite very complex complex so here we go in 1688 the Stuart dynasty, which had ruled Scotland for over four centuries, fell from power. Uh, James VII, who was also James II of England, um, was a Catholic. And that that was complicated because by that time, uh, England and Scotland had pretty much been quite entrenched uh, Protestant countries. So he was quite unpopular uh, in, in both England and Scotland. But it was OK because he had only two children and they were both daughters and they were both protestants and both married to very notable protestant princes so the succession was going to be protestant but then in 1688 uh, james's new wife uh, mary of modena had a son and uh, in those days, a son had precedence over a daughter. So that meant that if this boy was brought up a Catholic, then Britain would have a Catholic king. And so um, what happened very quickly, the English Parliament invited William of Orange, the, uh, the ruler of the Netherlands and husband of James's eldest daughter, Mary, to intervene. Uh, William invaded England uh, James fled London and basically uh, his government in Scotland and England uh, collapsed. 
J- James eventually fled uh, to to France. Uh, William and Mary became joint king and queen of of England, Scotland, and Ireland. And this event is known as the Glorious Revolution. Um, glorious for the people who took part in it uh, and won it. Obviously, uh, it's known as the Glorious Revolution because it was the really the last event in the big. Um, political drama of the 17th century between the king and the parliament and we call it the glorious revolution because parliament won um and that's that, that that's sort of how uh how british history has remained since then that that parliament is in charge and the the crown is uh, is their servant so that so that so that's the situation you have a uh, you have a protestant uh, you, well, a, a, a Protestant king on the throne and a Catholic uh, deposed king in exile in Europe. And, from... and that basically leads us to the yeah, point where yeah. we'll be talking to Rory and he'll explain what happens next. So, uh, so without further ado, let's get ourselves on to that. Mm-hmm. We're delighted now to be joined by Rory Hardy, one of the volunteers at Gladstone's Land and who I am told is a real expert uh, on the the Jacobites. Uh, so, Rory, hello. Welcome to the Gladstone's Land podcast. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. Well, we're very, very <laughs> pleased to have you. Um, Rory, my first question, really, and if you can uh, help us to uh, uh, elucidate for the listeners of it. <laughs> Good, good uh, use of Elisa Day there. Uh, very simply, who were the Jacobites? Who were the Jacobites? Good, good starting question. Um, the Jacobites were ultimately, for one reason or another, supporters of the deposed King James II, who had lost the crown in the Glorious Revolution of 1688. In the years that followed, ultimately, Jacobite, Jacobites plotted the return of the Stuarts, and also a number of risings took place. A very fascinating, tumultuous period of history. Um, you might be wondering uh, where the word Jacobite comes from. Well, yes. Well, yeah, very much so. <laughs> yeah. I call it an everyday worry, I'm sure, for the, uh, the, the populace of Scotland. <laughs> Jacobite is a weird word, um, and it, but it comes from Latin. Uh, Jacobus means James in Latin, and so the Jacobites were the supporters of James. I remember in one of my very first British history one tutorials at um, uh, at my first year at university, my tutor gave us a, a run through on the differences between Jacobite, uh, Jacobean, and Jacobin. Uh, <laughs> Jacobite being a supporter of uh, the deposed Stuarts, Jacobean uh, relates to the reign of King James the Sixth. And first, and a Jacobin was a French revolutionary French radical. Revolutionary, but right. anyway, we're not talking about them. <laughs> Joe, Joe thought it was important to clarify. Uh, we're talking about Jacobites. Yeah. Um, so the the most famous things about the Jacobites were the rebellions, the right. uprisings. Right. Um, there are uh, three famous uprisings. Is that right? The 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 eighty nine, the fifteen, and the forty five. Uh, could you tell us about those? Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
There's actually two smaller risings that aren't talked about too much. Uh, They're in the middle somewhere. Feel free to tell us about those. Um, as well. <laughs> I feel like we're going to hear about them. One upmanship here. <laughs> Very happy to rattle on about those. Um, the 1689 uh, happens kind of very soon after the Glorious Revolution. It uh, There's a rising in Ireland as well as Scotland. Um, ultimately, in Ireland, James II is present. He's defeated by William of Orange, who sails over um, the siege of Londonderry, or Derry uh, is broken and uh, Jacobite force is defeated. In Scotland, there was also a notable rising um, led by a man named John Graham of Claverhouse, also known as Bonnie Dundee. Is that where that song comes Oh, it's a Walter Scott poem, isn't it? Um, to the lords of convention, t'was Clavers who spoke, uh, uh, falls the king's crown, there are crowns to be broke. Oh. Old Cavaliers love honour and me. Uh, where were the bonnets of Bonnie Dundee? I oh. don't know where that just came from. I'd never made that connection. Yes. Think, yes. Um, so Walter Scott was, if not a not a Jacobite because he was a bit late. He was he was later, but he was keen on all of that uh, absolutely his, romantic his stuff. Novel Waverley, which is set um, for a time in Edinburgh, talks about the protagonist, uh, Mister Waverley, meets with uh, Bonnie Prince Charlie mm. in his time at Edinburgh, and Walter Scott clearly definitely buys into, I'd say, the romantic element of the uh, Jacobite present. Which is uh, an interesting. There you go. Um, Robert Louis Stevenson gets really into the Jacobites as well, doesn't mm. he? Um, kidnapped, I think, yeah. has the Jacobites in it. Yeah, I think, I think there's something about there's something very romantic about glorious failures. Yeah, there? I suppose that, that that's it. I heard quite a good um, comparison yesterday. Uh, I was doing a podcast, and a uh, historian compared it to how the Confederates in the American Civil War are. Mm. Lots of their songs are romanticised and their memory is much, much more lasting and remembered than perhaps uh, uh, the other side. Mm. People, yeah, people buy into, people buy into underdogs and people definitely buy into uh, losing sides. So even if they don't, when push comes to shove, they don't actually want the underdog to succeed, they might they still buy into the romance of it. Yeah. Yeah, which we'll get into later. So... Well, there's a, there's, a, <laughs> there's, a, there's a funny <laughs> phrase that's coined to do with the Jacobites. I realise we're getting vigorously off topic. Of yeah. oh, I, 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 I was trying to pull us back, but you know, um, you, you go on, right. tell us. So this the, there's a phrase that goes, the English drank to Jacobitism, the Irish dreamt of Jacobitism, and the Scots died for Jacobitism. Which is interesting. Oh, that, that is, is interesting. Yeah. So the 89, Bonnie Dundee, that was defeated... Correct. Uh, they won a victory at the Battle of Killiecrankie, um, but it was a victory where the Jacobite force of about 2,000 men suffered a loss of about a third of its force, including mm. the leader, Bonnie Dundee. Mm. Uh, it was an interesting battle. The Jacobites um, caught the government forces in a position where the the Highland charges it were, well, was going to be used to a devastating effect. Studying done on the battle shows that as the Jacobites were charging down the hill, the the, vo- the British or government volleys could only hit them at certain points. Mm. So they were allowed to charge home and delivered a victory, but 
at the cost of their leader and a number of the forces, and the, the uprising lost its sting off the, right. off the back of that, and they were de- defeated ultimately. So that's the the eighty nine. We have the the eighteen fifteen, seventeen, the seventeen fifteen. Yeah, um, this was where James the second, George James the seventh's son, uh, came to Scotland, right, to to try to claim yeah. the throne. Yeah, uh, very correct. Uh, the seven fifteen is quite an interesting one. It comes after the Hanoverians' succession. Hmm. So in seventeen fourteen. The throne had passed from Queen Anne, who was a daughter of James II, to George I of Hanover. And this was quite important because many people had felt that as Anne was still a Stuart, they were, you know, happy to serve under her and, you know, happy, you know... Is it uh, correct that George I was, he was something like 50, 50 something in line to the throne, is that? And they'd actually done quite a sort of a leap of... Um, <laughs> That's right. The um, the the seventeen oh something Act of Settlement, one of the acts of Parliament that was involved in the uh, in the Union, in the um, union settled the uh, said that you had to be a Protestant to succeed to the throne, and therefore the closest Protestant uh, link was Sophia of Hanover, the, the, the electress of Hanover, who was the daughter of James I's eldest daughter, Elizabeth, who had married uh, Friedrich V, the Count Palatinate of the Rhine. <laughs> Where does this knowledge come from? Um, but, because, but because both James uh, and his son, Charles I, had had a number of other descendants uh, mm. who had all become Catholics, right. um, they... in in, go- in going to George I, who was the son of Sophia of Hanover, they bypassed all of these no, Stuarts who'd yeah, gone back to being tenuous. Catholic. Yeah. yeah. Oh. And he never really learnt the language, did he, George I? The Englischer König, kein Deutscher. Didn't really want to be here. For <laughs> um, Sorry, back to the Jacobites. I'm now derailing us. But no, so because of all this, because we had this, this suddenly this foreign king, this um, usurper on mm, the throne, as he was. Yeah, there was a new zeal for the Jacobite cause, and there's a hiccup of a rebellion in 1708. It's uh, referred to, but yeah, there's a there's a big uprising in 1715, mm. and it's also, I would say, uh, the impact of the Act of Union that pushed many to action in this in the 1715. Uh, I was going to talk a bit more. I could talk a bit more about those later, but the recession that had occurred in Scotland mm-hmm. um, meant that there was a lot of economic factors pushing uh, people to rise up. Mm. And uh, this was also sort of tied in with, with French support, wasn't it? That um, they they thought that there was going to be uh, a, a French army coming to, to, to join and support, and then, but because the War of the Spanish Succession had ended just uh, just before that French support dried up is mm-hmm. that more or less why it failed uh, well I, su- I suppose yeah number of reasons for the for the failing um, the the issue of French support or indeed any foreign support is an interesting one and a common feature for the Jacobite risings always 
you know, looking over their shoulder for this foreign support. And indeed, you know, Bonnie Prince Charlie and the 45ers doing the exact same thing. So let's move on then to the 45. Because okay. this, is the, this is the famous one. Um, uh, Bonnie Prince Charlie is, is who in relation to James II and uh, his son, also James, who we've already talked about? James, the inverted commas, third. Right. Um, so Charles Edward Stuart is the first eldest son of James III. And so that made him the, the next... In the next Stuart in line to the British thrones. The, yeah, the ex- exactly. The, the Prince of Wales for the, for the Stuarts. So, and by this time, the Stuarts were where? Were they living in France? So following the 1715 failed rising, the Stuarts moved from their palace at Saint-Germain, you know, fully funded, uh, partially funded by the French court and Louis. They are forced to move to Rome. Uh, where they come under the sponsorship uh, um, or support of, of the Pope, uh, they mil- move into a place called the Palazzo del Rey, and that is where uh, Boniface Charlie Charles uh, grows up. Um, it's a it's an interesting place, though. We might think that he's growing up. He is very much so, I suppose, growing up in a European court. Uh, he's in Rome and. Uh, we see that affecting him. He's growing up as a young European aristocrat with hunting, and those sorts of escapades and dolls, that just, sort of thing. Just imagine it's a childhood in, and teenagehood in Rome as opposed to one in uh, uh, early modern Edinburgh. Must have been awful. <laughs> <laughs> sure, the weather it, it, was better, if nothing else. And so, uh, but he grows up and... Uh, but yes, he grows up surrounded by... Scots and Irish and other Jacobites who who had followed his father or grandfather out um, to to Rome to Paris and ultimately Rome and so that that is quite an important thing to remember is that you know some people ask you know did uh, Charles even speak English or Scots well the answer is yes he did he grew up surrounded um, in this kind of false. Court because because even though they were in in, in Rome, the the Stuarts very much uh, presented themselves as the British government in exile. Exactly. So their court was English speaking or Scots speaking, yeah. and they were handing out orders of the Garter, etc., etc. Yeah, a very interesting reference to the Order of the Garter, Tom. They assimilated or took on the ancient chivalric orders of the Order of the Garter and of the Scottish throne, the Order of the Thistle. And this was in a way to you know, establish and promote the fact that they were the rightful um, heirs to the throne. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very present in portraiture and uh, artwork that is mm-hmm. done of the Stuarts at this time. Um, so we get, to, um, we get to the 45. We get to the 45. Charles, Charles is a young man. He's born in 1720. So he's, you know, early 20s. He's lived his whole life in Rome, aside by his father, and, you know, pushed to action. And it's got slow beginnings, the 45, to speed things up a bit. Charles has been waiting on the north coast of France for over a year before he set sail. The promise of a French invasion that we talked about falls through. 
there was quite credible and tangible efforts from the French. An invasion force was put together, but the, a storm, uh, as usual, seems to dull the Jacobite efforts. Two ships leave uh, from the north coast of France, uh, the Jutelet and the Elizabeth. Um, the Elizabeth actually has all, all of 600 volunteers from an Irish brigade in the mm -hmm. French army and a number of uh, arms and money to help the cause. They run into a British naval warship um, off the south coast of England uh, and unfortunately the Elizabeth uh, uh, is forced to turn around. So the only ship arriving, heading towards Scotland is Charlie, accompanied by uh, the seven, seven men of Moida as they've been come, come to be known who are uh, accomplices of his Jacobites. And so they arrive on the west coast of Scotland, first on the Isle of Eriskay. And at this point, the prince has to be quite careful. He keeps a, a kind of a mildly covert image. They pose him at one point as a, a clergyman, English clergyman, visiting the Highlands. Um, and, it's, and it's hard work. He arrives, um, but the, the clan chiefs do not immediately flock to him. He has to you know, take on these... Uh, uh, these difficult uh, discussions mm -hmm. with uh, clan chiefs such as uh, Sir John Boysdale, who you know pushes him to return with French support. You know this is not the time; this will not work. And he gets a lot of that, and that's sometimes brushed over. But he he really pushes, and he's clearly a very driven young man. Um, but also a young man that's clearly quite um, special and able to capture, um, uh, capture the the not the thoughts but uh, impress these these Highland chiefs. And crucially, he gets the young clan Ranald and Cameron of Lochiel on side. And with that, um, with those key men behind him, he sets up the standard at Glenfinnan. <laughs> And then after that, they they did actually win some successes, didn't they? They they were able to to capture Edinburgh, mm -hmm. for instance. And Bonnie Prince Charlie spent some time uh, living at Holyrood Palace, uh, having holding court there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's a very interesting time, and it's very clear that there was a very considered period by Bonnie Prince Charlie while he was in Edinburgh. Uh, there's a lot of very considered, interesting actions that he takes on, and he leaves a legacy, um, leaves legacy to the people of Edinburgh. So it must have been quite Im important. Uh, it's also good to, to note that actually um, no king had, had visited Scotland at all since Charles I came for his Scottish coronation in 1631. Mm -hmm. And so this is over a 100 years Scotland has seen no king. And so Correct. to have... To have Charlie there holding court at Holyrood must have been very exciting. Exactly, and um, flocks of people, it's clear, do come and see him. They're very curious, even those that might have been, um, you know, not natural supporters of him. You have these fantastic sources of Whig ladies, who uh, Whig being the term for, um, you know, supporters of the government and uh, the Hanoverians. Um, Whig ladies that describe him as uh, adorning son and you know heaven's darling in one letter. <laughs> so it's just this you get this fascinating idea of ladies swooning over him and men being um, 
you know, really captured by him and he's clearly a, a man people wanted to follow. And it's... Does he take his... So obviously he's known as Bonnie Prince Charlie. Is that simply because he was considered a beauty of his day or was it much more to do with his charisma as well? <laughs> That's funny. I think um, there are a number of sources that describe him as handsome, uh, but I would I would say the word Bonnie is is more of a... Yeah, a more favourable term akin to his charisma. You know, even things marching with... The, the clan stand from Glenfinnan, he's said to have led the army on foot, um, you know, jumping into the, the jumping through the burns first and sleeping with, with the soldiers in tents by night. You know, you get this idea of a man who's um, very much passionate about leading from the front um, and being the right sort of leader, I suppose. You can see how that would have been... Uh, inspiring, but alas, they so, uh, it, they didn't it they didn't have the success that they hoped. Uh, after spending some time in Edinburgh, no, uh, what happened? So they they decide to continue on and march to London, and that that was uh, a much debated uh, issue for uh, Bonnie Prince Charlie. He has a council of war, and there's throughout a lot of uh, dissension and arguments within that council. But they, they march south in the end. Um, they don't march for Newcastle, which might have been a good idea um, if they had marched for Newcastle and cut off the coal from London. Uh, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a counterfactual theory than what might have happened if they had forced uh, an English recession. Instead, they go down via Carlisle and Manchester. Um, but ultimately, turn back at Derby. Um, which is the crucial turning point. And then they were pursued back mm. up into Scotland by the Duke of Cumberland, yeah. right, who was... Um, His name is Butch- Butcher Cumberland. Yes, Butcher Cumberland, yeah. um, who, with, with a, his better-trained uh, uh, German army and artillery, defeated the, uh, the Jacobite army at the Battle of Culloden. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Um, the ultimate um, end of the rising and uh, a significant battle in many ways for what followed the, the clamp down on Highland culture mm. and, and of course a National Trust uh, site <laughs> yes for anyone um, that's interested <laughs> this, um, throw that in there so um, so the, the the 45 ended in 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 failure and Bonnie Prince Charlie was forced to flee mm-hmm. Scotland um, and after that, he had a pretty tragic life, didn't he? he sort of moved about yeah. between various courts, um, and and died died a sort of sad a, alcoholic old a, man. A, a sad a sad life in the end. There's there's some interesting evidence that it wasn't all downhill mm. from um, from when he left Scotland. There's talk of even uh, the the American founding fathers, you know, wanting to bring over the rightful Stuart monarch. Um, <laughs> to become king of America. Um, well, there's a counterfactual for but, you. But, yeah, <laughs> an interesting counterfactual, but ultimately, yes, it is It is a sad ending for a man that was clearly quite impressive. And, you know, in his six weeks in Edinburgh, captured uh, captured the hearts of the populace and was remembered in the years following. You know, there's there's in 1746 
a band of 40 or 50 people march down from Salisbury Crack and Arthur's Seat with their blue bonnets and white cockades uh, to remember Charlie. And I suppose talking about capturing the hearts and minds of the people, that might be a good moment to 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 move on and talk a little bit about uh, a Gladstone's Land connection, mm-hmm. which we definitely have for Jacobitism. In the... Uh, in what we call the green room, um, which is uh, a part of the uh, the historic house, which is supposed to be set uh, in the early 18th century. It's actually built in the early 18th well, century, right, right. so <laughs> as opposed to the rest of the house, which is um, either built in the sort of the 16th and 17th century. That wing was added sometime after 1727. So um, because it's got a lot of its original panelling and things like that, it's very much been preserved in the this sort of the 18th century um, aesthetic mm. and uh, on the walls in the green room we have a number of portraits and uh, we believe that we have some information about some of the some of the members of that family having been jacobites right yes yeah very interestingly um, the portraits work together quite nicely and so the first the first portrait would be James Earl of Livingston and Calendar. Um, James Ooh. Livingston. Earl Just to conjure up a visual yeah. image, has one of the most fabulous wigs I've ever seen mm. in his portrait. <laughs> a, lux- a luxurious brown wave. Enormous. <laughs> uh, which and it, uh, allegedly is where the term big wig originates. It's <laughs> simply that the bigger your wig, the more important you are, but not a huge amount of historical evidence for <laughs> that. Uh, but you know, he has this, this fabulous wig. He's very beautifully dressed. Absolutely. Uh, despite the big wig, he was not a supporter of the Hanover. <laughs> he ah. was, interestingly, a Jacobite, and he commanded a troop of cavalry in the 1715 mm. uprising, which obviously failed. In the aftermath, James Livingston had to cut his losses and get over to the continent, leaving his sister, uh, Mary Livingston, to pick up the pieces of the family in her portrait, sits two to the right of her brother, she takes it upon herself to marry a eligible bachelor, a judge, Judge Graham, who was, was very well respected. Who was very well respected because he was dispensing of the Jacobite lands. So you have this interesting irony, but it also sh- shows you how the Jacobite risings truly split Scotland and split families. Um, another interesting um, example of that might be. Sorry, no, I was just going to pull this back to the Earl of Calendar for a moment because actually yeah. he's connected to properties locally as well. So he mm-hmm. was um, sort of the heir of Calendar House, is that correct? Um, in right. Falkirk, okay, um, and which was forfeited to the Crown as once he sort of. So, so fled. his sister goes and marries a judge that's uh, dispensing all the land, which uh, you know, well, why not? I can't, I, can't, I can't move. Some might say. <laughs> I mean, um, you've got to do what you have to do, particularly as a woman in the uh, the 18th century. Well, not a lot of choices. Particularly if your brother uh, clears off to, <laughs> uh, to Europe. Exactly. Um, but yet, yeah, so I was going to give a quick example of mm. how Jack sometimes split family. Interestingly, the Duke of Athol. Uh, was, a, was a key um, noble seat in Scotland, an important position. And his sons were split um, in loyalties uh, in the 15 and 19 and 45 rebellions. Interesting. So the eldest son, the Marquis of Tullybarden, was, in, was an ardent Jacobite. And because of this, his father 
uh, disinherited him, and the second eldest son became uh, the Duke of Athol. Athol. The Marquis of Tullibarden, interestingly, was played an important role in the 15 and 19 and was one of the men accompanying Charlie in that boat that managed to make it to the west coast and it was his younger brother Lord George Murray that joined uh, Charles's forces somewhere near Perth and became you know Lord George Murray was the key general for Charlie um, but also the cause of some of that dissension in the council because he mm. seems he had quite an abrasive character um, for better or worse. Well, they did. Uh, we didn't. We didn't lie, listeners. We do really have an expert on the Jacobites here today. Um, but it's just fascinating to hear, um, as exactly as you say, how it really divided families um, yeah. and split the nation. And we have a great example uh, of that in our portraits in the green room. So uh, we, a, a wonderful. We do have a, another Jacobite up there as well, don't we? Oh, we, yeah. we, we do. Yeah, no, we're not done we're with not, the Jacobites we're not done at Gladstone's yet. land. There, there's plenty of Jacobites okay. going on at Gladstone's land, and I will, I will try to be a bit, uh, a bit more concise on this one, guys. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 this is my favourite, which is why I'm, why I'm ah, okay. this on Okay, okay. So, um, yeah, well, Kate... You you know who who he is? Do you uh, so now? well, Maybe this Bill. is um, Admiral Gordon, and uh, he is he's a fascinating character. Mm. Um, so he's also um, a Jacobite, and instead of fleeing, he goes to join the Russian Navy, mm-hmm. who are a lot. Well, I suppose it is is fleeing in a way, but not in quite uh, the same manner. Um, uh, but the Russian Navy are very accommodating um, at this period. They're very keen to have skills and expertise. Um, he's been involved. Um, he, he brings those skills to the Russian Navy um, and he actually does very well for himself. Mm-hmm. Rises through the ranks, becomes an extremely prominent leader um, and actually in the portrait we have of him, he is wearing a medal, um, the Order of Alexander Nevsky, which is a very sort of prominent Russian mm-hmm. medal that would have been awarded by mm-hmm. Catherine I. So, yeah, a very interesting man who, fascinatingly from that position in uh, the Tsar, Peter the Great and later Catherine's, Court uh, was attempting to pull Jacobite. So he's still doing a bit of yeah. So you know we've talked about the risings, but um, as you yourself said, Thomas, um, there's a Jacobite movement across Europe. Um, key nobles in Madrid, in Rome, obviously, where uh, the old pretender um, is, and in the old Saint Petersburg, the old pretender, which is what they they called the. James the Third, yes. the, the son of the deposed king, mm-hmm. and Bonnie Prince Charlie was called the young, the young pretender. pretender, right? Um, so yeah, there's this there's this movement, or I suppose diaspora of Jacobites from uh, Prince Charles in Ireland to Europe, and uh, the portrait we have in the green room is a fantastic example of this. Um, this uh, network of Jacobites and how he was pulling strings uh, in the in the Tsar's court, um, and a plan uh, is known of a conquest of Norway with Russian help, followed by a invasion of Britain, um, in you know to put James III back on the throne. Unfortunately, as as all things Jacobites seem to do, it falls through. Peter the Great in 1725 uh, dies and this kind of personal connection uh, that Thomas Gordon clearly seems to have um, with the Tsar is 
slightly faded uh, with his wife Catherine, and so he doesn't get so far with the Jacobite uh, mischief after that. Continues to push the cause where he can. He does. He does. Um, but he he uh, he's thought of as a, a national a national tradition in a, a way because he opens that door to Russia, as you said, Kate. It was a great place to be if you were an officer with some sort of military experience, and many Scots follow him. Um, so it's an interesting pattern. Brilliant. Love it. This is great. I, uh, <laughs> the, the, one of the things, reasons that the Jacobites are so exciting to talk about is this this slight sort of um, glamour to it. You know, the romantic, mm-hmm. um, exciting, but ultimately tragic uh, story of of this uh, great what could have been. But uh, correct. But there you go. So, uh, lastly, uh, and and you know, really most importantly, um, as you know, on the the Gladstones Down podcast, we have this tradition of the dinner party, where um, uh, guests such as yourself are asked to invite three historical figures uh, to join our our party. Um, so uh, I believe you have some prepared. I've I've got some. I've got some in my back pocket. Um, <laughs> there's there's a host of people from history I'd uh, love to, love to have a conversation with. Um, the top of the list would be our man Bonnie Prince Charlie. Ah, uh, I'm I'm sure that comes as no surprise as you've <laughs> seen the light in my eyes as I talk about. <laughs> <him>. <laughs> I assure you, my they reasons. They have been gleaming. Yeah. My reasons are purely platonic. And, um, <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, I think, yeah, I think Bonnie Prince Charlie, as I've said, was a very interesting character. And for someone, even if he was surrounded by Scots and Irish in Rome as he grew up, that's still a very different environment to persuading. Uh, Gaelic-speaking clan chiefs and Highlanders to join him, and I think there was something a little bit special about um, about how it was. So I'd love to have sat sat near him at a dinner party. Number two would probably be Admiral Thomas Gordon. Oh, Good um, call. I, I would enjoy that too. <laughs> mine and Kate's favourite uh, Russian man. Um, uh, clearly a very interesting guy as well. Um, and thirdly. I think I would actually go for a slightly less Scottish history, a bit more off topic. Uh, love to have a dinner party with Barack Obama. Ah, has he been? He has, has been he invited that's already. Second, second that's, show, that's fine. No, no, that's great. Two Barack Obamas. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, who? Um, I think Nicole, um, who oh, spoke about the um, Mary, um, Queen Mary Queen of Scots, invited Barack. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, oh, anyway. might be Some, somebody else definitely. Well, so no, that would be excellent. Well, the man in demand. Um, Definitely. Those are those are brilliant. Um, I yes, I think we, it'd be good to have Bonnie Prince Charlie there. Really, we have already got a. We've got. Uh, he will be our second royal steward because Mary Queen of Scots is coming as well. Oh, they'd have plenty to talk about. So that would be. That would be his uh, five greats grandmother. <laughs> so uh, there you go. Brilliant. Um, Rory, this has been a really fascinating and uh, a lively discussion. Uh, thank you very much for coming on the Gladstone's oh, Land podcast. Thanks for having me on. Hopefully, I didn't ramble on too much. <laughs> You're great. <laughs>
that was a pretty great uh, interview with Rory. Mm-hmm. It was absolutely fascinating. Um, Kate um, had been saying from the very beginning when we first started talking about this podcast that Rory would be the person to get on to talk about <laughs> so it. So much enthusiasm. So, um, so there we go. So no, it's been really good to catch up with him. Um, and actually, we've talked about those um, that links that we have at Gladstone's Land. There is actually an, another one. So... Um, In the 1630s, we had a gentleman called Lord Crichton living on our first floor. And we know that from tax records um, of the period. This is the fellow whose castle in Aberdeenshire burnt down. Um, Some of it, yeah. To uh, uh, in um, killing a selection of his enemies in the process. Very convenient. Um, and it was, it was well, he was not found guilty in the end. Somebody else was. But uh, there was a lot of uh, public sentiment that was very much against his family at the period. Um, but actually, his grandson um, was a Jacobite and fought in the 1689 rebellion. Um, so a very sort of direct link to uh, actual inhabitants of the house as well. Um, and Sorry, go on. No, no, you, you were saying? I was just saying, and his um, son, a little bit earlier, whilst not... A Jacobite, uh, actually, he was the first uh, Viscount of Frendraft, which is Crichton's Castle, um, and he fought with the Marquis of Montrose against the Covenanters in the 1650s, so also an interesting character. So while not a Jacobite, he was sort of proto-Jacobite, if you like. I think the, the Jacobites are sort of, in many ways, the spiritual descendants of the Cavaliers in the civil wars. Um, and um, it's notable, I think, that the Crichtons are from Aberdeenshire, which was always, uh, in Scottish terms at least, the heartland of Tory, Cavalier, uh, Episcopalian and Jacobite sentiment. You know, that, 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 that was a very, um, an area where there was lots of opposition to the, the Protestant and Whig Hanoverian ascendancy. So... So yes, so so some nice nice uh, links there as well. And actually, we were just talking about um, the uh, Crichton son, so Sir James Crichton, um, who has a Wikipedia page, uh, and there is a wonderful throwaway comment on it that he died by his own hand on the field of battle, and it's something I've been meaning to look up um, for a uh, for a while now. So hopefully, I might be able to get back to you with because uh, it seems seems a very interesting uh, factual detail about him. I think this really does show, much like our discussion about the portraits, it really does show how this wasn't just a small group of um, of diehards. You mm-hmm. know, the, the the fact that within this very house we've got m- two examples um, in the small amount of history that we deal with here. We've got several examples. <laughs> Take a little bit issue with the small there. What? Well, no, but I mean, it's a... I was. It, it's okay. a. It's a. It's a slice. Oh, yes. um, it's a narrow slice of of history going through in a, a very specific location. In a very specific location, yeah. And the fact that we can talk about more than one Jacobite connection mm-hmm. here it's... shows you that it cut Scottish society right through the middle. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Um, we've got a little bit of housekeeping to deal with before we we finish mm-hmm. um i i do have to encourage you dear listeners to pass the pod um <laughs> you're so very polite about that <laughs> please if you if you wouldn't mind awfully 
Well, I don't know. How would you say it? <laughs> I don't know. So sorry. Uh, no, it's... Um, we. These things are spread by word of mouth, and uh, we, 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 I suppose, flatter ourselves into thinking that this is quite um, interesting, and I hope you do too. But more importantly, we're doing our bit to try and... Um, spread the word and help the work of the National Trust for Scotland. And so if more people listen to the podcast, then more people will know about the Trust. So please pass the pod and also review, rate and so on. We leave you today, listeners, with a little story. In talking about uh, the Jacobites, one of the... um, one of the things that always comes with talking about Jacobites are, are the romantic legends and the, the great myths and the fact that it, it existed uh, as, a, as a secret society um, throughout. Uh, Roy was talking a little bit about the Jacobite diaspora um, and through all over England and Scotland and throughout the continent there were secret Jacobites uh, and they had newspapers and pamphlets and merchandise and insignia and branding and songs and rituals and one one of these rituals uh, one of the most common and, and most illustrative of, of what they, they were like I will uh, leave you with uh, before we, we finish at dinner most people in early modern Britain drank the loyal toast to the king Jacobites would famously do this but move their wine glass over their water glass to indicate that their allegiance was in fact to the king over the water. So there you have it. That's our our episode on the Jacobites. Mm -hmm. Thanks for listening. And uh, we'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Gladstone's Land podcast with me, Kate Stevenson, and my co-host, Thomas Ware. It was produced by Thomas with support from the National Trust for Scotland. Our guest this week was Rory Hardy. Our music is Apollinaris and Clickty by Anna Bolstabile, performed by the Tudor Consort and licensed under Creative Commons. You can find Gladstone's Land on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and online at www.nts.org.uk slash gladstones land. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and see you next time.